This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Vivek Wadwa. Vivek Wadwa is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School's Labor and Work Life Program. He is the author of five best-selling books, From Incremental to Exponential, Your Happiness Was Hacked, The Driver in the Driverless Car, Innovating Women, and The Immigrant Exodus. He has been a globally syndicated columnist for the Washington Post and held appointments at Carnegie Mellon University, Duke University, Stanford Law School, UC Berkeley, Emory University, and Singularity University. Vivek is based in Silicon Valley and researches, speaks, and writes about advancing technologies that are transforming our world. These advances in fields such as robotics, artificial intelligence, computing, synthetic biology, 3D printing, medicine, and nanomaterials are making it possible for small teams to do what was once only possible for governments and large corporations to do, to solve the grand challenges in education, water, food, shelter, health, and security. In 2012, the U.S. government awarded Wadwa distinguished recognition as an outstanding American by choice for his commitment to this country and to the common civic values that unites us as Americans. He was also named one of the world's top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine in that year. And in 2013, he was on Time magazine's list of Tech 40, one of 40 of the most influential minds in tech. And in September 2015, he was second on the list of 10 men worth emulating in the Financial Times. In 2018, he was awarded Silicon Valley Forum's Visionary Award, a list of luminaries who have made Silicon Valley synonymous with creativity and life-changing advancements in technology. Hi, Vivek. Hi there. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm well. When my team and I started researching you and your work in advance of this interview, we quickly discovered that the biggest challenge we would face is actually figuring out how to talk about the immense and broad range of work that you do, all of which is deeply relevant to and important for the show's concept, which is ethics and technology. You're an expert on tech policy, especially in the context of foreign policy, on disruption, on immigration, on the relationship of tech to the construction and culture of the workforce, on the globalization of industry, on the offshore operations of tech in education and training, in diversity, in Silicon Valley, or lack thereof, and so many more topics that I think listing them might not actually be helpful. So maybe the extent and range and multidimensionality of your work is a good place to start. Do you see a central commitment or issue around all of which these areas and interests of expertise are, are pivoted? You know, the last few years, I've been getting deeper and deeper into advancing technologies because what I learned was that we have a range of technologies such as artificial intelligence, computing, sensors, networks, quantum computing, all advancing at exponential rates and converging. And by converging, they're making it possible to solve the grand challenges of humanity. I mean, a lot of things that have you know, kept humanity back, such as disease, hunger, energy, education, all of these problems can be solved now. So this is the amazing thing about technology. Over the last two or three years have been very difficult for me because I lost my wife to cancer. And in the battle to save her, I had a who's who trying to help me. Some of the most amazing uh, scientists and researchers. And 
yet we couldn't do it. Why? Because the entire U.S. medical system is geared towards the needs of big pharma, of making money for the providers versus helping the people they need. So the last two or three years, my entire focus has changed. In fact, I've even stopped writing. I was a regular columnist of the Washington Post and other publications. I can't write anymore because my single focus right now is to cure cancer. Cure cancer is a big deal, but it can be done. Because again, using the same technologies that I've been researching, what I've realized is it's, it's a data problem. That if we can get enough information about what makes people sick and what treatments work, we can do what we did with the microRNA viruses to build the COVID vaccines. We can essentially target the enemy, the proteins and the molecules that cause the disease and prevent the suffering of humanity. So this is what I'm focused on right now. And it's a project in India, which is going to now gather the data and biosamples by helping hundreds of thousands and soon to be millions of people with their treatments. And we're going to open source all of this information so that it's not held captive by a few vested interests who are trying to monetize it. We're going to now figure out exactly what it takes to cure cancer. That's what my passion is right now, frankly. I mean, this is very interesting for me. I have a person in my life that I love very much who also is battling cancer. And when I think about the disease and I think about the many issues that surround the disease, you mentioned a few of them, big pharma, questions of data gathering. But in order to gather the data, you also first have to know what you're looking for, what kind of you need. So you need people who understand the culture, the politics. You need people who understand the economics of a place. So what I take as well from what you're saying is that the problems that we're trying to work with, cancer being one of them, I think COVID would be another one. Climate change is certainly a third, are so large and so multidimensional and so global that you actually need a range of thinkers with a range of expertise in order to gather and solve those problems. The you... things you listed are problems of getting information, but to cure cancer, you need to know exactly what to target. You, I mean, really, it's at the molecular level. You need to get the genetic sequences of enough tumors. You need to know what the genetic sequences of the people who had them were, what their lifestyle and habits were, what the environment was, there are a lot of data factors. And once you have that, you can start understanding disease. When I'm talking about AI and computing and sensors and all these things coming together and making it possible to solve the grand challenges of humanity, a lot of what we need to do now comes down to information, the right types of information to do it. To do it. In fact, we can talk about any range of the world's problems. You know, you talked about climate change. Well, climate change, one of the solutions here is to move to renewables, to clean energy, to solar power, for example, wind power. Well, that also mm -hmm. boils down to now being able to increase the exponential progress of these technologies and letting economies get into autopilot and start implementing clean energy. We can't rely upon governments anymore because governments are lethargic, they're corrupt. There are all sorts of problems that happen there. And so the message that I try to teach entrepreneurs all over the world is that it's now possible for all of you to be able to do what only big governments and big research labs could do before, and we can better humanity. So technology can be used for good and it can be used for evil at the same time. What I try to do is to use it for good and to encourage other people to use it for good because I can go through a thousand examples of how technology is being used for evil. We see it all around us. We can talk about issue after issue after issue about how it's being misused by the wrong people. Do you have a sense of anybody who's using data well? And what kinds of practices and what kinds of policies do you think we need in order to generate productive data cultures? Well, look at what happened, you know, the example I gave you earlier of COVID. As soon as we had the genetic sequences of the COVID, when that data was available, suddenly we were able to have scientists now identify the targets and develop the vaccines. The microRNA platform is now pretty solid. Now we've learned how we can identify targets and start curing. I wanted to ask you a question about your experience in tech and how that may lead you to think about certain dimensions of data gathering. Did your experience in tech give you a sense of what kinds of skills a data scientist might need in order to productively gather data? Are they specifically data-driven skills? Are they questions driven by policy? What does a 
a good data scientist need to have in terms of a background? In terms of ethics, it's a completely different discussion because most data scientists need to know core mathematics and the core principles behind it. You can learn that in school. But then there's a human factor. What is right? What is wrong? What type of data should you be gathering? For example, I talked about the cancer project in India. We're going to be treating millions of people. My goal is to offer them treatments for free. Now, in return, we want their genetic sequences. Now, that's a data thing. So now, do they care about sharing their genetic data? Well, some people might, and you have to tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if they say it's okay, then you do it. If they say, no, it's not okay, you still need to offer them the free treatments anyway, because you don't want to hold them hostage for their data. But you have to educate people on what you're doing, why you're doing it. And the likelihood is they'll say yes. You know, for me, the best example was my wife. When she was suffering so much, I asked her, look, your genetic data, this form over here asks if it can be shared. And she says, Vivek, if my suffering can help others, of course it's worthwhile. Of course, I'll be glad to share my genetic information. So that's the way most people think about genetic data. Now, on the other hand, if you watch the way Facebook is gathering data, they're gathering data from every source you can possibly imagine. And they're doing it surreptitiously. They're, they're doing it without our permission. And then they're manipulating it and they're using it to manipulate us. That's evil. That's the evil use of data. So again, what the data scientists need to understand is the ethical issues. And the ethical issues are distinct from the technology issues. You really, we have to be teaching morals and ethics and we have to have curriculum in which we challenge them to think about what this means and to have them think beyond it so that even computer programmers who are joining Silicon Valley companies, they need to be taught ethics so that we have more whistleblowers revealing what happened within these companies and who are able to stand up to the executives and say, no, you can't do that. This is unethical. If you do it, I'm not only going to quit, I'm going to tell the world about the evils that you're doing because it's every person's responsibility to do what's right. Do you have a sense how we as academics might teach ethics? I know that you teach as well. Are there things and ways of teaching that you favor or that you think are particularly significant or things or skills that we ought to be teaching specifically? Yeah, Deb, you know, my son and I, Thero and I have been teaching advancing technologies at Carnegie Mellon. We built a new curriculum on this. About one third of it is discussions about the ethical issues. So whenever we teach them about a new technology, we now get into discussions about the evil uses of technology. We basically have integrated the ethics with the technology learning. My book, Driving the Driverless Car, a third of the book is about ethics as well. I would, you know, I didn't want to write a book about advancing technologies and all the great things they make possible without talking about the dark sides of technologies. So you have to be able to talk about both of it and make people aware that technology can be used for good, it can be used for evil. And it's up to you what you do with it. And moreover, you have a moral responsibility over here to make sure that it isn't misused. If it's being misused, you're complicit in it. You're complicit in the evils that you can be doing with it. If you follow my tweets, I'm haranguing employees of Facebook. Many of them are my friends, but I'm basically, the message I send out is that you're complicit in the evil that your bosses are doing. Either you speak out or you're complicit in it. It's going to be something that lives with you and dies with you. And you're basically building up negative karma and you're doing bad for the world by not speaking up. No, this is interesting because you and I share an interest on working on teaching of technologists. And I would also say people who are non-technical people who are going to be going into technological jobs because all jobs at some point are going to be, I think, technological jobs. How to think ethically about the work that they are going to be doing. I wanted to ask, what was it that led you to become a critic of tech? You have a lot of experience in tech as an entrepreneur, as a tech practitioner. So what led you to become particularly critical? Was there a moment? Was there a event? Was there a particular infringement by the tech industry? No, it's been something that I've been observing for a long time. A lot of the people I knew, you know, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, when I moved to Silicon Valley in 2009, my wife and I went out to an event where we were seated next to Mark Zuckerberg and it was a big deal. And I was a big fan of Mark's and we used to exchange very pleasant emails. And then I started seeing Facebook and I even wrote a couple of articles about the wonders that Facebook will do. 
about how it's going to democratize societies and unleash innovation and make the world a smaller place. I became a big fan of his until I started realizing that all Zuckerberg is doing is more and more evil. As he gets richer, he's becoming more greedy. As Facebook gathers more data, it's becoming more obsessed with data. And I started speaking up against it. I, at first, I wrote emails to him and uh, Sheryl Sandberg warning them about what they were doing. It was free basics in India that they had launched, the walled garden, where they were going to offer free internet access to the masses in return for giving them a walled garden. And I said, hey, something is wrong here. You're going to control what the villagers see. You're taking out full page ads about how the villagers are going to benefit from information about the weather and, and crops. Yet you're only letting them see Facebook sites and the things you want them to see and whatever advertisers pay you to do. I wrote a stinging email to them and I got back a standard corporate response. And then I wrote articles about it and got the same BS back from their PR people. They were ready to whine and dine me and schmooze me as they do with other journalists to win me over. And I, and I just realized that this is as corrupt as it gets. And I decided I'm not going to be part of this. And I started observing what was happening there. I started what was observing at a bunch of other companies where my friends went from junior executives to now being worth millions of dollars and suddenly they were selling their souls as well. This is probably what happened over a period of two or three or four years. And then of course my wife, she was my conscience and basically she would always point out the evils over here and my son Tarun as well. He would also rein me back saying, Dad, stop drinking this Kool-Aid. Even though you love Elon Musk, look at the crazy things he's doing. The guy is on drugs and he's doing all these crazy things. So basically my wife and children are the ones who started pulling me back because I was drunk on the power of technology and the amazing things that we could do. And fortunately, I'm surrounded by people who have a deeper conscience than I do. And they got me to realize something is wrong here. So I started speaking up as well. And the more I spoke up, the more I was alienating these people. And it came to the point that I don't give a damn. I mean, Mark Andreessen is another person who I held in the greatest regard. Elon Musk and Mark Andreessen, for example, both endorsed my first book on immigration, immigrant exodus. But I started noticing a lot of bad things. And I took on Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. You know, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of follow-up questions before I do. I just want to remark that your wife and your son both seem like really remarkable people. And it's intriguing and interesting because I, like you, live in Silicon Valley. And like you, I spend a lot of time with people in both Silicon Valley and people in tech. And of course, people in Silicon Valley are also frequently people in tech. And what I've discovered overall is that most of them are actually really thoughtful, really kind, well-educated people. They have gone to good schools. They've graduated from sophisticated programs. They are oftentimes very progressive in their values. And then they go work for Facebook and they maintain their progressive values. They go to these campuses that look like Edens and participate oftentimes in engineering projects that end up engineering a genocide in Myanmar. What do you think gets in the way between good people who are thoughtful and well-educated and then their work in technology, which is frequently oftentimes deleterious in consequence. It's their high six-figure salaries. These kids joining Facebook start off making $120,000, $150,000 a year and then go up to half a million dollars, even a million dollars a year. And suddenly their morals and their values and their progressive BS doesn't matter anymore. They suddenly start coming up with stories as to why maybe it's okay to start turning a blind eye to it. Essentially, they sell their souls. Mm -hmm. So it's just simple as the paycheck. It's the paycheck. I mean, and there's no excuse for this. This is why I tell my friends that there's no excuse for you being quiet about this. Go and make less money. You'll be happy in the long run and you'll basically die a happier person than having a little bit more money in the bank. And this is why I've given up so much money myself because my wife always used to say that Vivek, making money like this, you'll never live to enjoy it because this is not the type of money we want to make. We'll make do with less, but we'll live an ethical life. You know, Deb, I really miss my wife. She was my everything. And I almost start breaking down when I talk about her, but these are the values that she imbued in me. That's beautiful. I really want to honor that. That's absolutely beautiful. I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier. You talked about 
bit about your book, The Driver in the Driverless Car, and I'll just give it its full title, How Our Technology Choices Will Create the Future. You published that in 2017. Maybe we can start with the title itself, which enlists the metaphor of autonomous vehicles, which is a real technology that you talk about as a exciting technology, but also one that we should be concerned about. It's also a metaphor for you for the future of human existence in our present and our ongoing moment of very rapid technological change. Why is the driverless car such a potent metaphor for this moment? Because the message was that technology is going to take over our lives. So, so once we have driverless cars, we're going to become hopeless. We're going to become helpless. Now there's good in that, there's evil in that. And, and this is what the book talks about over and over again about every technology, that it walks through everything from AI to quantum computing. And it says, mm-hmm. look, driverless cars are good because suddenly now the cost of transportation will drop. People who can't see well or people who have any limitations will now be able to get transport. It's going to be wonderful to be able to now get from point A to point B at 150 miles an hour because we don't have to worry about incompetent human beings crashing into us. All of these things are good. On the other hand, we become dependent on them. We become the drivers in the driverless cars and we just become victims of the technology. Is that good or is it bad? Well, it's good and it's bad. That's the problem with every technology. I mean, the technologies we're using right now, Zoom, wonderful technology. You know, the fact that we now have connectivity, it's all wonderful. However, everything we do now is being watched by uh, by tech companies. God knows how many countries this discussion is uh, going through and who's monitoring us. We've lost our privacy and we have these amazing devices coming into our houses that walk around these robots that Amazon is releasing that walk around that get get our beer from the fridge from us and so on. However, they're spying on us 24-7 and they're learning about what we do, what we don't do so that they can sell us more or so that these companies can market everything about us, all of our private information to other people and make more money. There's good and there's evil with every technology and we're helpless. So the message of the book is that all of these things are happening and we have a choice to make. And then what I do is I explain that, look, laws are codified ethics. Ethics are a consensus that builds over time in societies and ethics really are social values. So we have to dictate what the, what's right and what's wrong. We have to discuss with our neighbors, with our, uh, our peers, our friends, our relatives, what's good and bad. And then we have to tell our politicians what laws we want enacted. It's really for us now to dictate what is legal and what's not legal. That's what the whole book talks about. Do you think that our current laws and policies are correctly and productively codifying our ethics? They're running a decade, two decades behind us. I mean, it's only now that lawmakers are realizing the evils of social media. It's only now that they realize that, hey, Amazon has become a monopoly and it's become dangerous. Maybe we have to break it up. They're waking up a decade too late. We should have had these rules and regulations much earlier. Facebook was accused by the United Nations of fermenting genocide against the Rohingya refugees. It's ripped sides apart. In the United States, we have an entire new generation of leaders that are spreading hatred, misinformation. Misinformation has become acceptable now. Whether you're on the extreme left or the extreme right, I'm not taking sides over here. Both sides are doing it. And the fact is that it's polarizing us. It's ripping us apart. That's because we let Facebook and other companies run rampant and do whatever they wanted to do. And look at the results of it, that we have such reproductive social problems. We have a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. If our laws could keep up with ethics, we would nip this evil in the bud. But we didn't because no one understood what was happening. Policymakers don't understand these things. Again, the message of driving the driverless car is that it's not the job of policymakers to understand because their job is to implement the standards that we set for them. The ethical values, social consensus, it's for us to do it. So therefore, we better wake up and start learning it and start educating others about it because we got to tell our policymakers what's good and what's bad, what we want and what we don't want. Do you think that there ought to be another body if regulators and government moves too slow? Can we conceive of another kind of regulatory body or a kind of committee that might be equipped to make these decisions? Here's what the problem is, that these interests have become so strong that they'll do everything they can to block it. We can't rein in Facebook. One social media company, we can't control them. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and Screw are buying out our politicians in Congress. They go in front of them and they make mockery of them. If 
we can't rein in one tech company, how are we going to deal with all of the other problems that are happening? With China now gaining so much power and controlling tech industry surveillance, all the evils that they're doing, and all of these Chinese technologies becoming rampant all over the world, how are we going to rein in China? Forget about Facebook, how are we going to rein in China and the evils that it's doing when it's manufacturing these devices? Our Apple phones are all made in China. Our mm -hmm. drones are, 80% of them are made in China. The technology that we're using right now is Zoom, made in China. And the Chinese government is the most evil of all. It's basically now suppressing millions of Muslims in parts of their country. It's reining its entire population in and it gained inordinate power in the tech industry. It also has its tentacles in Silicon Valley on the boards of companies, investments in companies. How are we going to rein all of this stuff in? I, I worry a lot about this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. My background is in human rights. And of course, the big catastrophe in human rights in 1945 led to the development of a governing body that we call the United Nations. And the United Nations was an international community that got together and said, we need to figure out a way such that this will never happen again. We need to set our regulations. We need to agree to international standards. And we can agree and disagree about the United Nations. And we can also admit that the United Nations has allowed multiple human rights violations in the years since 1945. But it did seem to be a moment where the international community set up a regulatory body that at least in my mind, if not preventing all of the human rights abuses that have occurred since have been instrumental in setting guidelines that have stopped many of them. Do you see the growth of an international regulatory body? Is there a possible way that you see the development of some system that might be helpful or productive? The UN was very relevant when things were moving slowly and when there was no way of coming together. If you look at COVID, the World Health Organization, which used to be a very respectable organization, China essentially bought out key people. And to date, we haven't been able to find out what happened in Wuhan because of the WHO. Right. So when you have government bodies being purchased by countries, how are we going to rein in all of this evil? I, I really worry. I mean, Deb, I go one day from being a complete optimist to second day being a pessimist. Now you made me worried again because how are we going to rein all of this stuff in? I see an amazing future being possible here. You know, I started off by talking about solving the grand challenges of humanity. I see an amazing Star Trek future. And then I start worrying about the darkness of Mad Max. I start worrying about evil governments, evil corporations, about rampant unemployment, about the jobless future, about the gap between the haves and the have-nots increasing at the same time and society being ripped apart. So there's no clear outcome over here, really. And this is why uh, I keep saying that it's for us to understand that the enlightened have to come together and figure out what it's going to take. I can't do it on my own. You can't do it on your own. But there are enough smart people out there who really care about humanity. That's the redeeming thing about humanity. That's always had darkness. So you go to any era of human existence and there's always been darkness side by side with light. You always had good people who care about others who do good. And you always had people who are evil who do bad and they coexist and eventually good triumphs over evil. That's how it's always been. So that's why I'm optimistic that there are enough good people in the world that will come together and will figure it out. How is that going to happen? I don't know. You're smarter than I am. Well, I doubt that. But I do think that's something that you say in that book uh, that you've repeated here is a helpful way into it. You know, you've said multiple times, law and policy are codified ethics. This is a quote sometimes attributed to Gandhi. So if law and policy truly are codified ethics, then the question that I have for you as somebody who I think of as very smart on this issue, what ethics do we need to codify? What are the basic building blocks that you think we should know, understand, be aware of as ethical maneuvers or ethical 
aims that might be codified into law. With every technology, it's different. This is why I wrote the book, Driving the Driverless Car, because I walked through all of them. I walked through AI, for example. I said, okay, here are the good things about AI, that you can now recognize patterns. You can now start understanding what's happening around us. We can now find cures for cancer. We can now do all of these amazing things with AI. We can now have self-driving cars. We can now do all of these wonderful things with it. On the other hand, AI, as we've seen, depends on who coded the biases. It has the biases of the creator. So now you can have discrimination against people who have dark skin. You can have discrimination against minorities because the people who happen to be writing the AI algorithms happen to be ignorant about these issues or happen to have their biases. So it's good and it's evil. What we have to start doing is understanding each technology. Take another technology as an example, drones. The drones are coming. The drones right now are sophisticated enough to be able to fly around and deliver goods. They can also carry weapons. They can recognize people's faces. So we're going to be doing drone-based delivery, which is, hey, really great that you want your Starbucks, you go on your smartphone, click on a button, and 10 minutes later, you get a drone dropping your latte on a delivery pad in your backyard. Wonderful. However, that drone now happens to have a camera on it to guide it, and it happens to peek into your window when you were in the shower and record it. And some sick guys on the other side of it start sharing the videos on the web. It's the same technology, right? So are we aware that this is happening? Well, we should be aware because we've had drones flying around for a long time, and we should be educated enough to realize the dark side of technology, but we're not aware. We're essentially turning a blind eye to it, and we don't seem to realize that there's some major ethical issues coming, and we could have drone-based warfare soon. We could have 9-11 attacks via drones. We could have our Amazon drones delivering goods, spying on us like never before, and then Zuckerberg is going to want to have his own drone so he can watch everything you're doing. We, we, we should know by now that this is coming. We should be having those ethical debates, but we're not having those ethical debates. I think I wrote a series of four articles for the Washington Post about six, seven years ago saying, hey, the drones are coming. Let's start having the ethical debates. No one listened to me. So, so <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to do. You know, it's <laughs> first I'll just say, I'm not sure that Mark Zuckerberg needs drones to uh, see what I'm doing. I think that people usually post their own goings abouts and doings so that he doesn't no, he need wants the drones. No matter how much you give him, he wants more. <laughs> But the metaphor of the drone is, I think, a really potent one as well. You know, you talk about the drone as having real potential and possibilities for doing good. When I think of drones, I think about drones being able to go into rural areas or impoverished areas around the world, particularly in the global south, and being able to deliver critical goods and services in places that can't provide them. But I also think, as you point out, about the possibility of drones perpetuating terrible horrors and dystopian surveillance states as well. So as you point out, technologies are usually a combination of both both good and bad, but good and bad in, in both consequence and in intention. Do you have a metric or a way of thinking about how to evaluate a technology so as to decide whether we ought to influence speed up, slow down, or outright stop using and building it in your terms? With every technology, it's different. This is why in the book, I tried to give the different examples of it and I started to list all the things we need to think about with that technology. And then the technologies keep evolving. Mm -hmm. So we really need to have ethics commissions in every country because it's not going to be on a global basis because every country has, country has different values and different problems. So it's really going to be at the country level, even at the community level. I mean, if you look at COVID right now, you have the red states not wanting to wear masks and not wanting to be vaccinated. You've got the blue states going overboard in saying you must wear a mask everywhere you go and you must be vaccinated even if you already had COVID. So we have two extremes building right now. President Biden is trying, but we're not going to be able to come up with one standard for the entire country, even on things like COVID. So we got to realize that it really depends on our communities, our states, and we may have to have different things that are acceptable based on the community 
communities we live in. There's no easy solution. There's no black and white spreadsheet that answers all your questions. Yeah, I like the idea that, you know, in addition to having to think about the fact that our ability to codify an ethics of technological production into something like law or policy is complicated by the fact that our technologies are rapidly changing and developing in this landscape. But it is also true, as you point out, that we also have a very incredibly diverse society. We are dealing with these technologies coming out in an age of profound globalization and that these technologies also help speed up that kind of globalization by, for example, making information faster and easier to access, travels quicker, and of course, we ourselves are traveling quicker. So what do you see as the challenges for tech regulation in the context of not only diversification in our own nation, but globalization? The single biggest problem is understanding the technology, that people just don't understand what we have, why we have it. It's an education problem, that we're dealing with ignorance, left, right, and center, up and down, right from people on the street to our political leaders. I mean, forget about all the technologies. We understand one or two of the technologies. And this is in an era in which you have many technologies coming together and converging and making incredible things possible. Just to push back on that a little bit, we have policymakers regulating, for example, building sizes or the car industry are regulating tobacco without having backgrounds in molecular biology, the effect of tobacco without understanding how automotives work or without understanding how construction and engineering works. Um, what makes tech education and knowledge different in terms of regulation for policymaking in terms of its complexity that perhaps does not apply to these other industries where regulators have very productively made regulation? No, I didn't say you had to have an expertise in that area. I mean, all the areas I talked about, you listed a whole bunch of things. I'm not an expert on anything. People just think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but the fact <laughs> is that we need to have people who can understand the small picture and the big picture. And I mean, our policymakers are hopeless because on top of everything else, they have to worry about being reelected. And so they have to have populist policies and they just try to do whatever will get them reelected. So they don't have time to dig in and understand it. Their assistants typically tend to specialize in different fields, so they don't get it either. So what we need is thinkers with diverse backgrounds who can learn about technologies, who are not corrupted by industry or by evil governments. And we need these people coming together and helping us educate and uplift society. Picking up on one of the words that you use there is diverse thinkers. And I'm interested in the context of and the importance of diversity in tech. This is something that I think a lot about, primarily because one of the things I see happening with the unintended detrimental consequences of technology is that when you have a group of homogeneous people looking at creating, ideating, and then developing technologies, you have ossified blind spots and biases and passions that are limited in their ability to provide value for and to think about the ways in which different people will use those technologies because they come from diverse contexts. You talk a lot about your interest in diversity in technology or the lack thereof in Silicon Valley. Can you talk a little bit more about what you see from your perspective and what do you see as some of the consequences of a homogeneous tech culture? You know, to start with, I wish I could be talking about minorities and different groups from all over the world and so on. And the problem here in Silicon Valley is that half of the population, the female half, is left out. And I've been very vocal about it, that this is a boy's club, where we've discriminated against women, we have held them back. And this is the same thing outside Silicon Valley in the sciences. A lot of some of the world's greatest technologies discoveries were made by women, but the women never get credit. The women are relegated to second, third rate roles. Imagine if we could just take half of the population and get them involved with innovation and decision making. And it happens to be the half of the population that's more sensitive to human needs. And that itself, by enabling, empowering women, we would uplift humanity by itself. And then we start looking into different groups, different ethnic groups, 
different religious groups and so on. We start micromanaging after that. But right now, this is the battle I've been fighting in Silicon Valley is just to empower women and get rid of these male stereotypes, get their companies funded, get them to be treated as equals and give them the recognition that they deserve for all the great things that they've achieved. You know, it's interesting. I had a conversation a while back with Scott Hartley, who runs something called The Fund. It is a venture capital organization and their commitment is to gender equity in their investments. And what they have discovered is in their process, they team each team with 50% men and 50% women, meaning that every single investment team has an equal gendered opponent to it. And they don't have a commitment to investing in women entrepreneurs. They just change the construction of the team demographics. And they have discovered that they end up investing in something like 40% more women entrepreneurs, not because they have a particular moral commitment to it, but because what you see as a problem worth investing in is dependent on your background and what you know and what you experience yourself as a problem that is worth solving, worth putting money into to solve, a problem that is valuable, an idea that is valuable. And I found this such an interesting and innovative thought because it brings my mind not only to the social good Deb, of, I think- Deb, red flag in what you just said. You said 40% yeah. more. Now, last time I checked, we're talking about 3% of the venture funding going to women. So 40% more than three is still nothing. We need to go from three to 30% to 50%. And that requires radically different thinking than just adding. I mean, this is what a lot of these tech companies do as well, that they'll throw some women here and there and throw them on this committee or that committee and say, oh, look how diverse we are. And now we're going to change. No, that's not good enough. We need to have metrics for the venture capital industry saying that by 2030, 35 to 40% of all funding needs to go to women. If not, then all of the people who put money into these funds, retirement funds or universities and so on, they should not be putting money into any venture fund that invests in companies that are male dominated. You know, we need metrics like that and have all the entire venture capital community responsible and have very tight metrics on it. And, and I don't want 40% improvement. I want 400% improvement. Yeah, as do I, <laughs> as do I. But I think that, you know, 40% improvement is a significant improvement. How would you go about building a infrastructure for developing more venture capital and more entrepreneurship targeted at developing the 400% that you're aiming at? I would get the activists, find out who's funding these venture capital firms. It's, you'll find that it's our pension money that's going into it. You'll find that it's government money that's going into it. You'll find that it's our university money that's going into it. Go to the funders of the venture capital funds and say, look, we don't want our funds going into venture capital firms that invest in males only. I mean, that unless they achieve 33% within the next three years, you must cut off all funding for them. And let these limited partners of the venture capital funds tell the VCs that, look, if you don't get your numbers sorted out, the gravy train is ending for you. You'll find a sudden change in behavior. Suddenly they figure out how to do it. That's the type of activism we need now. Do you see any examples of firms that are doing what you suggest that they should? There are a few, just a handful of women-led funds that are doing the right things, but they're dropping the bucket. I mean, they'll take us from 3% to 4%, maybe, but not to 30%. We really have to go after the big firms, the Sequoias, the Kleiner Perkins, the Mark and Reesons, and so on, who are getting their money from public sources. We need to hold them liable. I mean, I tell you, if you took the top five venture capital firms and you cut their sources of funding off unless they cleaned up the act within three years, magic would happen because they're not stupid people. They're very smart people. <laughs> Suddenly, they'd figure out how to get the diversity that's needed. That's the type of change we need. And who would make those kinds of changes? Is that a government regulation? Is that a economic regulation that is extra governmental? Government regulation, well, all that will happen is that these people will send their lobbyists to D.C. They'll double the kickbacks they give politicians. And suddenly, they, if they write any bills, they'll have loopholes in them that you could drive a truck through. It really has to be on the ground. I mean, public protest, social media protest, and targeting the people who are putting money into these funds. So what I sound like a radical now. What's happened to me? What did you do to me? <laughs> what did you do to me? 
<laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I wish I could get more people in tech and Silicon Valley to uh, express radical views. I think it's really important. And I think that, you know, you're overturning a lot of kind of sacred cows, which maybe is allowing us to think outside of the given models that we need. And I always push my students to think outside of given models. One of the things that I, as a literary scholar, am particularly interested in is the stories we tell and the possibilities of imagining outside of those stories. So I appreciate you providing an extramural story that I can take back to them and say, look how possible it is to think outside of the narratives. I've got another reading assignment for you. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the book? Uh, the title of the book is Innovating Women, The Changing Face of Technology. It's a book that Farai Jadia and I crowdsourced. You know, I, I want to use new technology to talk about new technology. So we literally had 500 women helping us write this book. And it's basically their stories. It's about how they rose above the discrimination that they face in the tech industry. And it's really, really a book for women by women. I, I just happened to facilitate it. So I put my name on it so that it would, I could get the publisher to publish it. And uh, women dominate. They're not. Would you be willing to summarize or share one of the stories that you found particularly significant with us? There are many stories in here, Deb. It's really the stories of many women and how they overcame diversity. And the message of the book is in the future we're headed into this advancing technologies future. Uh, women have the advantage here because, you know, maybe in hardcore computing, the boys dominate right now because you look at the computing schools, it's male dominated. But in the soft sciences, in biology, in social sciences, in ethics, in many of these, uh, these fields which are increasingly important, women dominate. They're now increasingly graduating from universities in many, many, many areas. These are the areas that are going to make the future. So the message of the book is that women are going to own the future. Let's help them. And, and it really has many anecdotes in it of how women rose above the problems they faced. Yeah, it's really interesting. I sometimes get asked to speak on panels about AI ethics and other forms of ethics in the context of tech. And usually it's me, the single- uh, You're the token you're the token woman. I hate to use that word. But, <laughs> but, uh, because these conferences are under a lot of pressure to have women on there because people like me have been making a big fuss about it as have many, many great women. So public pressure got these folks to start realizing that, hey, we better have women on this panel. So they'll go and they'll basically find a woman from wherever they can, but they don't show the respect that they should to women. So we need to, continue being vocal because it will make an impact. It puts you on a stage which you need to be put on, but we now need to have other women being put on the same stage and hear their voices. Well, you know, I was going to say I might be the token woman, but I'm also the token humanist on that stage because we spend the first five minutes talking about AI and the next 55 minutes talking about ethics. And I find this quite amusing because I like to point out to this panel that sometimes people spend eight to 10 years getting a advanced degree in computer science so that they can be proficient in talking about the technological dimension of the work. And some people spend eight to 10 years getting a degree in something like philosophy so that they can become proficient in talking about ethical problems and that perhaps we need more humanists and more ethicists and more social scientists on these panels as well. And I think about this because I think it's, as you pointed out, the soft sciences and the humanities are oftentimes dominated by women. And sometimes that becomes a way in which both ethics and women are shut out of these kinds of conversations. The humanities are as important as engineering are in the future we're headed into. I mean, as you saw with Apple, the one thing that gave it the big advantage of turning a trillion dollar company was design, elegance. And design comes from the humanities. The musicians and the artists have an important role to play over here. And that's what Steve Jobs had learned. So, uh, and most companies in the tech industry are now realizing the importance of the design. And again, that comes back to the humanities. Ethics comes back to the humanities. You don't need a degree in ethics to be an ethicist. You need to have a soul. You need to have a heart. You need to be able to express yourself and understand the bigger issues. Yeah, I think the training in it helps as well. 
that's one of the things that I'm working on. I'm trying to develop a curriculum so that not only technologists have proficiency in ethics to work in the tech industry, but so that humanists have proficiency in technological issues so that they can bring that into the industry as well. One of the things that I think about is that the next generation of technologists in the next 10 to 20 years, I think, in the tech industry are going to be governed as much by questions about ought we to do something or should we do something as they are, can we do something or is it technologically feasible to do this? So I think about that a lot. I think about if we have the job market opening up for questions that are fundamentally ethical questions, which are, of course, questions about should we or ought we are, that it might be important to bring people with those kind of training as well as that kind of soul into the industry. I agree. I wanted to ask you a few more questions before we have to end. And they have to do, I think, a little bit more about the kind of diversity in training and workforce in order to kind of enlarge the scope of thinking in the tech industry. I wanted to talk a little bit about global diversity. You have spent quite a bit of time researching how STEM education in the United States creates a culture of innovation. But of course, as your work points out, a lot of the innovation and entrepreneurship that we see in Silicon Valley originates elsewhere in India and China. How, in your view, are are people trained in STEM outside of the United States taught to think about tech entrepreneurship, innovation, and ethics? And how does that impact the workforce and the outcomes of tech production? I've looked very carefully at India. I mean, I researched their education system and why they were succeeding despite the education system being so weak. And really, it's rote memorization, very rigid education. It just happens that they're smart human beings who live in a free and democratic society who learn how to break all the rules. And when they become employed, they start applying their social skills to their technology skills, and they break out of the bound that they had there. That's the simplest way of describing it. And then they come here and suddenly it's like taking a plant and putting in a very fertile soil. They thrive over here. And Silicon Valley is very diverse. More than half of the people here are from abroad and more than half the companies here are started by foreigners. And when you have different people from different parts of the world coming together, challenging each other, that's what boosts innovation. Innovation comes from diversity, from critical thought, from breaking the rules. So that's the magic of Silicon Valley. And that's what you begin to see a lot in India. And until China cracked down on its entrepreneurs, that's what was beginning to happen in China as well, that the next generation really were breaking out of all the bounds and doing incredible things. I think we have time for one last question. So I want to throw out a question on behalf of the students who listen to this podcast, the next generation of the tech workforce, tech leaders, innovators, and thinkers. As a tech leader and a leader in academia yourself, what would you want the next generation of innovators, technologists, and humanists to think about, know about, understand, or to have at the center of their ethics as they move into the industry? I want them to realize that technology can make it possible to do things that were once impossible. They really can build the future of Star Trek, an amazing future in which we don't have to worry about hunger, poverty, disease, suffering that mankind has had, that we can now be seeking knowledge and exploring the stars. At the same time, we are at this junction in which we could be ripping each other apart. Secessionist movements happening all over the United States, for example. We now have a Mad Max style rampant destruction and so on. A world wars breaking out. All of these things that can happen at the same time. It's the choices we make that are going to make this future. That's what the theme of driving the driverless car was, that we have to start learning about these technologies and figuring out how we're going to use them in ethical ways, in good ways. And we have to learn what the trade-offs are and do what's right for us and for our communities. If we get it right, we get Star Trek. If we mess up, uh-oh, Mad Max. Well, thank you very much for this conversation, Vivek. And thank you also for all of the work that you do. And thank you for honoring the memory of your wife so beautifully by committing yourself to creating a culture of ethics and technology in Silicon Valley and across the world. Thank you, Deb. It was great to talk to you.